All right, so we are back at it again with Geology on the Rocks, episode seven. So this one's going to be a little bit more of a um, kind of personal episode, not personal for like personal sand's sake, but for uh, the few people that did answer questions. So I'm James, the geologist. And I'm Brian Baggin. And today we are going to do a, a listener special. We figured instead of uh, I guess more dictating the the flow ourselves. We gave a chance for people to uh, weigh in and give their questions. So the idea, I think we're just going to, well, let's just start off. How's your week been, man? The week's been good. I uh, took a little bit of time off. I'm lucky enough to get Columbus Day off and God, we got to fix the name of that holiday. But, um, I, I, <laughs> but yeah, I, no, I agree. <laughs> like I, I was sitting there being like, do they, do, are they still calling it Columbus Day? Because I thought at least given the, oh. the, the situation like they <laughs> they got rid of no the... it's uh it's still going strong in the name book anyway man um, yeah no i i went to the zoo i um i borrowed a new pedal from my guitarist so just kind of working on that nice what's, what's the pretty low-key week it's the strymon iridium so it's not an effect that you do on your guitar it stimulates an amp and a cabinet so you can choose like different types of amps and a different type of cabinet so not only can you play what you would like stage volume where no one can hear you you can also record direct with that and that's really what i'm looking for because i can't play too loudly in my apartment and get good tones no yeah yeah. i feel like yeah whenever you turn down you kind of sacrifice that 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 tonality oh yeah definitely well that's good uh yeah no it's been well my kids were off from i guess last thursday friday they were off monday tuesday and wednesday so it's what yeah i don't i i do not know so they had like two weeks off or two days off last week then we had the weekend and then the holiday and then i guess two in-service days if you will it's so what school district is this because my kids had no days off oh really Except for Monday in the zoo. No, it was like a zoo over here. So doing the PhD (laughs) thing and trying to read and oh, I have this. So we have these annotated bibliographies that we have to do. And then we also have this position paper that we're writing. And it's been very distracting, to say the least. And then, of course, whenever we're doing class at night, because uh, we planned on doing the the schooling, going to actual campus, and then my parents agreed uh, prior to to watch them when we would go to class, because it, it was in Arlington. They live in Arlington. But given the circumstances of COVID, it's all online yeah. now and virtual. So <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, I think uh, the, the last one, or no, I guess it was like two weeks, they were like, your kids are awfully, uh, they like to make guest appearances and i'm like this is true they make guest appearances in most of my lectures so (laughs) (laughs) so it's i guess we shall don't don't mind the rustling of the papers this is uh um, where i have my notes so we (laughs) we took uh, a special thank you to kevin and tom for your questions this week it made this one possible again so we honestly i prefer it this way so if y'all are listening we like the questions. It almost feels like we're giving like a vomited dissertation when we try to cover one subject. And I, I really like the multiple questions this time. So I, I am hopeful for like a really good feel tonight. 
let's keep them coming. That's, yeah. that's what I want to press that, on all the listeners. <laughs> and, that, and that was kind of like the idea too of when we would have episodes, if they would like, they wanted to ask questions too. And it would kind of just, it, it would be a little bit less prescribed, if you will. I, I don't know if that's a good term, but it definitely breaks up the monotony. So like we're going to cover a, a few topics. It may cover what we've talked about before. Uh, so one is going to be about deforestation. One is going to be about uh, the, the Great Lakes. One is going to be environmental issues. The other one that I know that you're super excited to talk about, Brian, is the moon rocks. And then lastly, we're going... <laughs> La Luna. So, and then lastly, we're going to talk about the the San Andreas Fault, kind of the Ring of Fire, San Francisco, the big one, and will California break off into the Pacific Ocean? So, where do you want to start? Anyone on any ones you want to? Uh, uh, I, I liked the order. I, I, I liked the feel of it as I went through it in my research. So, let's just start from the top, I guess. Okay, well then let's talk about it. So deforestation. So uh, that's kind of the 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 hot one of the the big things that people I think automatically go to whenever they are thinking about climate change. So mm-hmm. and then we think about deforestation. So I have a couple notes. Do you have anything that? Uh, immediately stands out. So I guess the question is, let me state it. So deforestation in South, how will deforestation and the the tearing down of the uh, rainforest in South America, how will that impact the world on a global scale? I I know like talking to you beforehand, like you have quite a bit of what your point is really interesting. So I can start and obviously the the Amazon, like that, and we're talking about all of South America, but I'm going to just pinpoint like the major culture rainforest and that's amazon amazonia and it's basically it is a terrestrial carbon sink so because of the density of flora and fauna there it absorbs about what like 25 percent of our anthropogenic emissions of fossil fuels so that's a that's a big hit if we're if we're starting to lose acres and acres of this thing then we're reducing our capacity to combat what we're doing to the earth so really mine like since the 1960s we've had large-scale deforestation and a lot of that's due to agriculture right they're like moving land so that they can have more area for their cows to be and then they slaughter and sell the meat or whatever but what i wanted to focus on was that as you do that you start to mess with a lot of the the relationships between the organisms that make the rainforest work it's basically an equilibrium uh, because of you know you have your your trees and plants and animals live in those and they carry their seeds they do all these things then fungus will grow as like things die and the fungi have relationships with other animals and when that gets impacted when those things start to die off you have a really horrible domino effect and that's where the rainforest will start start to hurt is when things aren't working as well some things might get ahead yeah. and that's going to really screw with the system they have and then we get screwed because then we're losing a lot of the capacity like i said earlier for us to combat what we're doing and that's why there's i mean i I don't know anyone that hasn't heard the problem of climate change i mean that this is a big key factor and it's it's not like this thing that's far away that we are not going to see or even in north america or europe if we have people listening over there but i mean this is a big deal i i know we're going to talk about climate change in another episode but for me this is this is the big one like I, I care more about this than I do about earthquakes or volcanic <laughs> corruption. You know, like no, I, it, I, it's, it's going to impact my kids' lives. It's it's huge. Yeah, and and I and I 
I, I really like that answer, like the domino effects, right? And it's, it's I, I think a lot of it is the unintended consequences is, is, a, yeah. is, a, is a big one when it comes to the rainforest, right? So I like to, this one, I always, not always, but I, I try to make, when I talk about this in the classroom, to be more of a uh, kind of a an interactive kind of assignment because I it comes to a lot of it whenever you have, when it's talking about the soil. So it's like the human impact on soils and deforestation definitely impacts that. So I like to kind of take a step back, right? What, what we've seen with the, from just the onset of civilization, right? The humans, as we started off in the, the cradle in Africa, so we were a hunter-gatherer species. Then we were very limited. So about, you know, maybe a million of us were around, you know, a couple hundred thousand years ago. But it wasn't really yeah. until we see agriculture led to civilizations. So it, we were able to kind of, we, we, we were able to be, put the destiny in our own hand. We didn't have to wonder where our food was coming, right? So I, that's, that's where... Yeah. This is where I start my long winding kind of long term implications and globalization. <laughs> all right. So when we think of deforestation, it's not just the tropical rainforest. We had the different types of deforestation of the what the temperate forest were the big ones. Right. So whenever the, mm -hmm. the wherever you had the civilization, uh, you had to make land or make way for the, the crops. And then a big one that people don't think about is the the cattle, if you will. Is that the. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's That's cattle and dairy. Right mm -hmm. What we're seeing now is a global power shift. I know I talked to you a little about. So it's the these urban pressures. So when you have two percent of the world's land surface that are going to be occupied by cities, which consumes seventy five percent of the world's natural resources. Where do these natural resources come from? Well, uh, the Brazil it has a lot of uh, mineral resources, not just mineral resources, natural resources. What we're going to see here is, bear with me, right? So I think it's going to start with this urban pressure. And who's to say that Brazil can do whatever it wants to with its own land? So, I mean, no one stopped us whenever we were becoming into a, a powerhouse, right? We used our resources. Right. So wh why why are we telling them, no, you can't, you can't use the rainforest as a resource, as your that but what we're going to see is by the year 2050 brazil or so the the g7 our gdp it's going to be tilted by this the emerging asian economy and mm -hmm. they lump brazil in with that it's going to be this their infrastructure develops down in brazil they are going to their their natural resources are going to underpin that growth so it's it's kind of one of those catch 22s like they are going to they're going to use this to shift out of that, but I guess the problem is the the world implications. But so whenever they cut down these trees, is so I mean I feel like if they do it, they should do it in a um, in a economic or not a in a environmentally kind of forward consciously thinking way because most of the land is not good for I guess if you because these oh man I'm stumbling I'm gonna have to edit all this out <laughs> well, it's not ideal for that for the industry so they're not I mean from what I understand about it it's like they're not getting a lot of gain they're just getting a small amount so even uh, the cost is even even more as far as like the way the like uh, down the timeline of earth would the cost that we're going to end up paying. So they're, they're like, they're looking to, to stabilize an industry, but they're not really getting that far ahead. And it's, and they're not only just cutting down the force, they're, they're burning a lot of them. And so we have like what 50% of the, of Amazonia is protected, but 
the parts that isn't that they're burning, like like up to one fifth of the entire Amazon is emitting more carbon dioxide than it absorbs. Like that that's huge. That's that's um, a that's a really good that's a point I didn't even think about. Yeah, so it's yeah. so burning the 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 physical carbon of those trees being released back into the atmosphere is so it's produ- producing more than it's uh, absorbing. Right. So it's accelerating the problem that the rainforest is trying to help. So it's we're, our cost is exponentially greater. No, yeah. I'm sorry to derail there. But oh no, no, no. Good. Absolutely, I dude, I've I've derailed already. So uh, what are, <laughs> where I was going with that is so they they are exploiting their 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 natural resources right so they're going to cut down the rainforest and they're going to make way for agriculture the the thing with the rainforest is is that it's not particularly well suited for plant growth such as your wheats and your grain so most of that land mm-hmm. is actually going to be used for the cattle the thing is so th- what happens is they tear it down the soil is not able to it's not very uh, viable soil so you're going to get an incredible amount of runoff so the the mm-hmm. soil for food production depends on the soil and the fresh water they have the fresh water but the soil is not going to be able to it's not nutrient rich it's devoid in that so the it leads to widespread damage so south america it says it's up to 41 percent due to deforestation so the the degradation of the soils there is uh, completely due 41 percent is due to uh the deforestation and just for uh an idea of a scope so every year 12 to 17 million acres of farmland are degraded worldwide so this equates to 27.5 billion tons so you think a ton is 2000 and you times that by 27.5 billion so that's how much uh, is eroded away by wind and water every year so I, I here's an interesting fact did you know that when a raindrop hits the the soil or just a bare piece of soil that how it's dislodged that it can actually travel up to a meter away from one raindrop like these little wow particles of <laughs> mud and dust why i say this is that this is unintended consequences of it so you have this the soil erosion so then other indirect are the use of so you want to do agriculture then it leads into this whole idea of fertilizer being uh, applied and then that has its own consequences right so you're having nitrogen nitrogen yeah. so the the limiting growth factor of plants is nitrogen but the phosphorus and potassium right mm-hmm. it brings a lot of this nitrous oxide into the um, atmosphere and that's the one of the one of the most important greenhouse gases that we have and then the unintended consequences of that that we'll get into later and why we study this but the the nitrogen the NO and then depending on how rapid it is you have like the NOx right but it's one of the main catalysts for ozone depletion that I I'll, I want to get into with the three so we'll just keep that in mind I'm trying to set up all this for later too yeah. but but then and also it leads to ecological changes too, right? You talked about it just simply cutting it down. You have that ecosystem being destroyed. Well, the nitrogen too is going to put different pressures on this environment too, not just on the land, but in marine environments and aquatic environments as runoff, right? So we already know yeah. that the soil is not being able to uh, stay in place. So it's being eroded away, but then it's also for more aggressive plants to come in and overtake, right? So if you take away the forest and you have this 
like weed come in that's if you yeah. fertilize everywhere <laughs> but okay so back to it okay so then fun fact is is that a lot of it too is illegal did you know that it's like the the yeah the, the deforestation up to 30 percent of the world's uh lumber or logging is from illegal logging so you have a lot of unethical kind of black market of all these kind of exotic woods also when it comes to the conservation of the rainforests too uh you have this overall uh, global uh, warming, right? So the, it's part of the climate yeah. change. But this actually is kind of a positive feedback loop in, in that it causes rainforests to die back. So this is going to overall, like, so here's so here's the uh, uh, the overarching consequences of it is that it's going to have decreased rainfall. So that's going to right. also, you compound that with heat stresses. So these large areas of forest to dry out and then they actually turn into uh, kind of a, a savanna type uh, biome or grassland, which is then it's not able to hold as much CO2, which you brought up the point of it's emitting more CO2 than absorbing. Now, if you have more of this CO2 or more of the forest being dying back, you're having less carbon dioxide being uptake and it's kind of this positive feedback loop a positive feedback loop just meaning that it's going to amplify the initial change i think that's what it means yeah you're right and another point like as you were talking about uh, the ecology like a, a lot of research has been going on as far as combating cancer and there's different organisms like i mean spider venom snake venom even frog poison with within their skins like we can use those and they're trying to combat cancer and other illnesses with that and some of those species that are like target for for utilizing that live in these places that are getting burned down so not only are we creating a hotter earth that's going to you know melt our glaciers raise the temperature flood places on coastal regions but we're also limiting what we can use to combat other things like cancer and all that, that maybe we've like accelerated ourselves by different carcinogens that we're taking in in our diet that we're relying on like these industries that are ripping down the rainforest. So it's this cycle of negativity that I just, I, it, it's, I'm starting to, as I get older, I'm like, man, like I have abused the earth. Like it's just, it's a terrible feeling. With uh, complete kinda, disregard, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not a joke anymore. Like, you know, like we there's so many movies about it. Like, go watch Fern Gully. Maybe that's what, that's the right answer. <laughs> Fern Gully. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. like kind of get the idea why old people are always like yelling at young people be like, you need to listen up. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, but like, so it is a real issue. So um, one way that we can do to combat that is when you buy wood or paper, make sure that it's from the Forest Stewardship Council and that mm -hmm. where um, you can also see if the companies adopted a zero deforestation policy or even a zero net uh, deforestation policy. So there's, I know there's some more sustainable uh, kind of companies whenever it comes to wood and paper that, you know, wherever they tear down a tree uh they have one planted so it's this kind of recycling of it so i mean that's one possible uh way to move forward and make sure that we are uh doing all we can doing it all yeah <laughs> so i mean that's deforestation and we'll get into a little bit of the more of the kind of the chemistry when it comes to environmental issues here in a little bit but i think yeah. the the next top so yeah we're trying to stay at about 10 to 12 minutes per topic and i think that was right around 10 to 12 minutes so the next one is oh no no <laughs> all i have is great lakes and glaciers hold on one second i'm going to uh, i'm going to read the I have question. A question okay you want to read the question 
Yeah, yeah. So the question is, how old are the biggest lakes in the U.S.? Like Lake Superior, Lake Huron, Lake Michigan, Lake Erie, and what was the place? What was in place of these lakes before they formed? So I think we kind of crafted our own question out of that, which we just basically were like, what are what was there before the Great Lakes? How did they form and when? No, yeah, um, and I and I like this question because there's being um, not. I I feel like if we lived up and towards the Michigan Basin more, like we'd probably know a lot more about this. But it yeah. was it was real it was real interesting uh, reading about all of this stuff in the Great Lake Formation. So um, I think we did talk about this a little bit, didn't we? So I I yeah. I thought it was and and anyone out there too. If I if I misspeak too, you can completely tell me like to shut up. That's not how it formed. <laughs> but so I think Same. that at, at the at the very beginning because. It's it's it, there was um, uh, millions of years ago there was a fissure that opened up or this kind of fault that opened up in North America from I think Oklahoma all the way up through Canada that you almost had rifting apart in uh, America but it wasn't America back then I think it was Laurentia and then this kind of overall led to the the eventually led to the formation of. The, gla- the glacial lakes, or, the, or at least the path that they were able to cut down a little bit, right? Yeah, it's definitely due to the bedrock structure. And there's complex as far as all the Great Lakes. They have different things with, beneath all of them that allowed the glaciers to settle in. So definitely to answer the, the first part of that question, how old are, are those lakes? I, I think the glaciation that had settled in these like big troughs, that's what I'm going to call them, started melting about... 20,000 years ago and maybe the melting like was really near its end at about 14,000 years is a late late Pleistocene age because um, I know the 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 last global maximum or the where the the maximum extent of the actual um, glaciation was about 18,000 years ago so I think that's that's right around the time frame yeah so yeah yeah and so that's that's how old the lakes are and you're you're kind of spot on like what happens structurally within that area of the continent is what allowed the glaciers to settle in and scour and create these large lake basins. Do you mind if I kind of get into that a little bit? Oh yeah, no. So, uh, okay. Okay. No, but like, so when we think of glaciers too, so what if the, wherever the maximum extent was, so let's say that's 18,000 years ago. So if they, the maximum extent, so what we know is that when glaciers, they are a source of, um, till, so whatever they're they're grinding, they're picking up everything along the way with them. So it's this conveyor belt of sediment. So wherever mm-hmm. it's, whenever you start getting uh, melting occurring more in the summertime than you're having accumulation in the wintertime, that's when you're going to have the glacial budget start retreating. So that's what eventually led to the, the the retreat of all this glacier. But you can imagine, so this, this it's, it's hard to even fathom, I think, is that you have this a mile thick... <laughs> piece of ice that is just advancing <laughs> forward right but so you can imagine all the the stuff that it's able to take up with it right so it's not just like oh a piece of ice in your in your cup it's this heavy heavy <laughs> it's just it's just a lot of force being uh, applied and it's just grinding away so there i think there were mountains at the time up in that yeah. area due to that rifting and that rifting uh, kind of caused the the subsidence, right, to even lead to that basin and warping. But then the the mountains all around were ground just basically because you don't think of you don't associate Michigan with mountains, do you? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> like no. But I mean, if there were there, mountains right. there, you can imagine like so this 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 huge ice sheet 
extended out. It, it eroded and eroded and eroded all of this material away in these alpine glaciers and it, you know, or however they were, they were formed. And then, then as all that stuff is being uh, uh, tied up in this ice, so when it starts melting, what's going to happen? It's going to start dropping all of that material at the base. So we call these uh, the, the terminal moraines, right? So this yeah. is where all that, 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 that goopy doo all kind of piled up and it kind of served as this dam to actually start, uh, I guess, allowing the influx of the water somewhat. So I'll let you you go from there. I just wanted to set up like how it would even uh, able to like start even keeping this water in. But it's, I think from the, the, the moraines or the, the till that kind of dropped out at the, at the maximum extent that you can measure. So. Yeah, that, that, that was definitely like, Oh God, I'm about to say it. The icing on the cake. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I see what you did there. I like that. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But long before that, so let's talk about Lake Superior. Lake Superior is enormous and it's really, most of it is part of the Canadian Shield. So it's a lot of Precambrian granites, gneisses, metavolcanic, pretty hard stuff, but it also has meta, like metacortzite and sandstone. And so what happened was during the mid-Precambrian, these rocks were folded, uh, creating that mountain belt you're talking about. And what happened is it created a syncline. A syncline is basically a structural fold of the rock, and it creates what, if you were looking at it in this sense, it's, it's a large basin. So the on each side of the structure, the rocks dip inward towards the basin. Yeah, so the so oldest that was, is on the outside, the youngest is in the middle. Right, exactly. And so what, what happened is that's, that's the perfect place for a glacier to, gravity-wise, slow down and settle there and scour out and make this lake much deeper. And that's Lake Superior is insanely deep. So that that's why that lake had in it. The syncline is really wide. I'm not sure the actual what the miles are. But that's, that's just one of the lakes. The other lakes are basically they were glaciers went in through areas that had conjugate joint patterns. So the joints were like they agreed with each other or they created like even at 60 degree angles and they created this erosionable line basically through the area. And so the glacier goes through and it's, you know, through its gneisses and granite, metavolcanics, it's not going to scour too deep. But when it hits the sedimentary rocks that were just lightly metamorphosed, those are more easily erodible. And so the glacier just cut, 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 and created a basin there that allowed it to happen. When it comes to Lake Michigan, Erie, part of Lake Huron, the west part, and part of Lake Ontario, these rocks are different. They're Paleozoic, so they're a little younger. They're Silurian, Ordovician, Devonian. And what happened is they formed a basin. So this is, I mean, I, I don't know if it was at the time like a marine basin or what it kind of sounded like it because it was like limestone, dolostones, and shales, which I assume would have to be formed up in the oceanic or I, I can't imagine another lake or non-marine basin. But Michigan, like when you look at a, a geologic map, it's, it's a, it looks like a bullseye. <laughs> no, it does because it's, 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 yeah. it's the, it's, I think I said it at the beginning, it's a, the Michigan basin. Yeah. It's this enormous thing that is the entirety of the state, and all the rocks go down in the basin. They it's a little bit more controlled than like the pattern that we see in Lake Superior, or even like the ones that were formed by the joint patterns, because you just have all these sedimentary rocks. They're all jointed like 
more uniformly than you would a an igneous intrusion or what, what's going on in the Canadian Shield. Yeah. And so these rocks allowed, like, you have these step downs through there. And these glaciers, they come through, they move at whatever rate, and they're scouring out, creating what eventually, when the ice melts, Great Lakes. And like you said before, they were dammed up by all this unstratified till. That's uh, like the key thing about till is it's not stratified. It's just a jumble of stuff. Like you said, it picks up everything. And then the, the terminal moraine, like the end moraine, that's just where it all sits. So the glaciers couldn't get any further. The water is not going to get through as fast. And so the influx of melt allowed it all to settle there. An interesting thing is because of the removal of the solid phase of water, less dense. And so the, the actual earth, the, the crust there is rebounding now. So oh, it's slowly, yeah. like by an inch, almost a year, I think. I, I, I think it's like two, but in some, like it's, uh, it was, uh, and I think more towards the, the Lake Erie side down over there, it's rebounding a little bit, it like much faster than the couple of inches a year that it is elsewhere. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm I don't know, but I, I believe you. Yeah. <laughs> Say it with enough confidence. No. So yeah, yeah, no, I, and I, and I like that. And then some, some interesting facts too about, uh, that, that I didn't know that, uh, what is it? The Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. I believe they are there there are two separate lakes. It's hydrologically they are the they they rise and they fall at the same time. Yeah. Am I am I crazy with that? So and then No, I I read that as well. Yeah, yeah and then um with Lake Superior, so I I believe like the flow was at uh, it began north uh south. So whenever you did have this uh I I forget the actual river the, the, the Illinois River that comes out, but like they were feeding into um, the Mississippi drainage basin, uh, I believe. But then now it's more of a um, uh, east or I guess west to east kind of uh, discharge. So it, now it, they they it all goes out in towards the Atlantic Ocean, right? So it's a stair step that you were talking about. And then I'm sure everyone is familiar with that stair step um, of the near Lake Erie, and that is known as Niagara Falls. Yeah. So the Niagara Falls is interesting too, is like you are, it's the, why you even have that is that, that down cutting, but you have, uh, so the, what am I saying? So at the base it's being eroded and then it's unable to support the top and it kind of falls down and we call this down cutting. So the, yeah. the water's wanting to go to ultimate base level, which is your sea level, right? <laughs> I guess I just said that. But so the, a fun yeah. fact about that, so it's actually receding so that Niagara Falls, it's, it hasn't always been there. So it's receding. So it's reduced uh, about a foot backwards every 10 years. So in about 50,000 years or so, it's going to go all the way back to Lake Erie. So I wonder yeah. what implications that mean whenever it cuts all the way back to Lake we, Ontario. Uh, we deal a lot with that at work. And so it's, it's basically, it's a form of scour. And so you can just so everyone knows we're like for as far as engineering geology, you have two types of erosion as far as a stream channel or like in this case, like a huge Niagara Falls or a spillway at a dam. When the water flows over, when it's activated, it has the initial erosion, which is like impingement erosion. So you're like the water actually hitting the plunging power erodes the rock and it'll erode it in like whether how strong the rock is or what its structural orientation, like the deformations of the joints. But what, what's going on there at Niagara Falls is the back roller effect. So it creates these eddies going back that allow it to rip out the rock from underneath. And then the joints that are within that 
strata overlying that area that's been scoured, they start separating off. And so you have these huge blocks. And so over time, yeah, like not only could you lose a, a beautiful feature that we have, but it could be catastrophic depending on how much water you lose over time. Yeah, it's a little, yeah. I didn't, <laughs> it's, it's all, it's, I, so I'm not, I'm not too familiar with all of that. I just know with the, with the down cutting, does that have to, does that have anything to do with the, the, the ground from the isostatic rebound adjusting back in the, in the cutting down? Um, that definitely, the isostatic rebound is anytime you have any amount of weight on soil or rock, it'll, if that's removed, then you have the, the isostatic rebound. That makes yeah. sense. So, I mean, like a lot of this I did, uh, we had no. So the, what was there before? It was uh, a rift starting yeah, to open up and, and mountain belt. And then it was eroded away into, so I guess, is that, I guess I, I'm not too hip on the, 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 the strata there. I know that it's a good example when, when you talk about the, the, the folding of the strata in the, in the sense of a, a basin, but I'm not sure. I mean, did it, did that, does that inflow come from, I'm guessing it had to, from that retreat and the erosion of that, uh, from those mountains, right? Or am I crazy? Cause uh, it's, cause it's yeah, a sedimentary basin. Yeah. Cause the mountains were produced. It's like, it's called the Pinocchian orogeny. Orogeny just means mountain building, but like the, it was in the pre-Cambrian, mid pre-Cambrian. So the granites were pre-Cambrian and then you have the mountain building that created a lot of the the gneisses, metavolcanics, meta sediments that were deposited from erosion. And so that that had already been there. So yeah, all the subsequent sedimentary rocks that were uh, like the Silurian, Ordovician, and Devonian most likely came from, like at least the siliciclastic side came from that erogeny. Okay. And so- I'm sure someone out there that's from the north midwest gonna rip us a new one on that but <laughs> it made sense in my head oh reading on it <laughs> too like uh i'm i'm not even i'm just gonna say the word ice volcanoes <laughs> but i don't know <laughs> <laughs> it did because it like created like these holes and slush and water yeah but i we'll have to go into an episode of ice volcanoes so. <laughs> so all right well that's i hope that answered your question about the great lakes i think that was right about 10 minutes. So I think we're doing good, Brian, man. Yeah. This is, like I said, I had a good feeling about this one, but we, we're going to ramble on forever. <laughs> yeah. So, so then the next question is, I guess it's, it's all going to kind of tie back to the, the deforestation. Oops. Sorry about that. That was your coffee mug. If you heard the kink, kink, that was y'all's coffee. Oh, that, what, what are, so are you having coffee right now? Or are you being one of those people that puts like wine or whiskey? Oh, no, no, no. I'm having my uh, my 40 Creek. No, nice. I, ha- I have these. So if you don't know, so I like we on the side as a side hustle, we we make uh, these uh, glitter tumblers. Oh, we, we make glitter tumblers. So I do all like the um, the decals. So like the 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 digital could you, I mean, you saw the, your digital signature that I made, I guess, what is that graphic, yeah. graphic design? So I do a lot of the, yeah. the graphic design stuff. So I have a, a cricket up here and I have all of this vinyl. And then I started making t-shirts and then I was like, man, I, then I got into like this idea that I wanted to start a sublimation on the, on t-shirt making instead of it being vinyl. 
And like sublimation, like I could explain that because that's a geology term or not a geology term, but it is a, a chemistry term, right? So when it goes straight from a solid to a gas, it's sublimated. Yeah. So that's basically the idea when you sublimate onto a t-shirt is that ink gets superheated, turns into a gas and it mixes in with that fiber and then you take it out of the heat and then it it solidifies again. So that's a deposition. So the ink is deposited in it. So anyways, long story short, I... I for like 80 bucks, I bought like this uh, mug heater. So it's kind of like a heat press, but for coffee mugs. So I was like, huh, well, I'm going to use that. <laughs> so that's how I started <laughs> making like uh, coffee mugs. So I need to yeah. get yours to you. I need to get Kevin his and I need to get Tom his for their participation that's in this. So that's awesome. yeah, so that I mean, that's no, but I have the mugs up here. It, I call this this little uh, area my creation station. <laughs> and I have my dinosaurs up here eating each other. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what can geology tell us or help us? Or what's the actual question? It says environmental issues solved thanks to geology. You wanna, All right. You want to? I keep uh, hitting. Yeah, I can. I can go first. Okay. Well, I'm in. Um, I'll have a conversation. I, I, yeah, yeah. I I think like so many can be solved that way. The Everything. one that really came to mind. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> basically, <laughs> the one that came to mind, like like you said, going back to the CO two excess that's going on right now um, in global warming. One thing that physicists, environmental engineers, environmental scientists, geologists, mineralogists have been trying to work on for quite some time, they've been successful as far as the science. Uh, what they have not been as successful is as far as is, is the expense of it. It is the, the term I'm going to say carbon sequestration. And one of the ways they've been thinking about utilizing it is by using olivine in the forsterite variety, so magnesium olivine, and basically impounding it with the CO2. Okay. And what happens is it'll capture it. It'll bond to it because, like we know, olivine is very unstable, most unstable element as far as Dolan's reaction series, the first one to crystallize, and it's just a tetrahedron, so it's easy to attach to other compounds. The CO2 and the forsterite will then create a reaction that creates the mineral magnesite, which is a magnesium carbonate. And then you have a little bit of SiO2 quartz left over. So what they've done is they're like, okay, we, we can we can do these, we can create these in factories, we can uh, do whatever, but they were running into the problem that it, it's extremely expensive to do this. And they now are thinking about actually injecting CO2 liquid into pore space in these these either peridotites or basalt. And so what they're, they're learning is these primitive rocks are really able to quickly capture the CO2, keep it in a place that is not going to go anywhere because it's a much more stable mineral at that point. Magnesite's much more stable than olivine. And so we can reduce the emissions or at least like reduce the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. I'm trying to find the percentage and I guess I didn't write it down. It's 0.04% of the atmosphere. Uh, no, like how much if we use this technique how much we could reduce. Oh, okay. The, the, the amount that it would be able to take it away. That, that I'm yeah. not sure. Of, Cause I mean, I, th I feel like that's the tricky thing because let's, let's, let's take that. Let's take that down. So I guess take a step back from all of that. So how do we even know that the carbon dioxide or the, cause so when we talk about carbon dioxide, that's just the byproduct, right? Of a, so when we think of uh, the fossil fuels that we're burning, 
they were once living things, right? So it, it has right. a carbon component to it. Then the, you know, how the, the plants breathe it in uh, it or and then we exhale the carbon dioxide, however that process works. <laughs> but right, yeah. but where we, how do you, how do we, so when people say, hey, it's man-made, it's anthropogenic carbon dioxide, how do we even know how, I mean, do you know how they, how they determine if it's anthropogenic if it's or anthropogenic or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you can do like strontium isotope carbon. So you can do like inorganic organic carbon and carbon 13 and it will give you a signature. And I'm, I'm more on like the high temp geochem. So this is not really my forte, but signatures isotopically can tell you where it came from, but also how long it's been around. And so when these things get as far as like when they're expelled from our cars or like just from plants, they'll have a reset in the isotopic signature. So we can date these things. We can look at them, we have carbon dating and different isotopic signatures and abundances. And that's how we can tell like, hey, this signature is not related to what is just naturally occurring versus what is anthropogenic. Yeah, so I yeah, so the, I, that's exactly it. It's it's that isotope. So we've talked about carbon 14 dating. So and the why they can carbon 14 or why it's so it's more accurate, right? Is that so, okay, so when we think about the carbon isotopes, isotopes I, what it just it has the the more neutrons or protons. I don't know. More neutrons. Yeah, okay. So you have carbon 14, you have carbon 13, and you have carbon 12 is the most common. And then so yeah, you just think of, Yeah, so think of all of the carbon dioxide out there. When we think of carbon 13 is that increase about 1% of the entirety of it. And then cal carbon 14 is about 1 in 1 trillion carbon atoms in that carbon dioxide. So it's a it's a trace element that it's it's a, these very precise measurements. And I think how it happens is that you have how we know that the anthropogenic carbon dioxide is actually increasing in the atmosphere is because it's it's that size. So whenever you have the the plants uptake this carbon dioxide, because that's how they breathe in their uh, respiratory process, they, they take in yeah. that carbon dioxide. So based on the the fixation of that carbon twelve, it's a much smaller molecule that it's going to selectively take this smaller one because in their stomata. Then yeah. what we see is is that you have this increase of this thirteen, and then I think that they can take that and then they can actually percentage wise they actually make carbon take that co2 and they do something to it in a lab and then they actually get like carbon from that maybe yeah and like and <laughs> you, no yeah no you're right and like but what they can do is they can trap the they can transform the phase from gas to liquid and use that to inject in pore space they can also synthetically create olivine which they've that was one experiment they tried and they they do it it's just very expensive so okay. the thought now is we're on to something. We have other minerals we can use, but how can we do this in an economically feasible way? So, so I there's, think, there's hope. It's just... <laughs> no, yeah. And then I think another... Um, possibility that I was reading about is that they actually, when they find these briny waters in subsurfacely to inject it mm -hmm. into briny waters, because it forms some sort of a trap or a seal. If they inject it into these areas, I don't want to speak to something that's outside of my realm of really thing, but I, <laughs> but I do know subsurfacely that they want to do that. Don't, aren't they doing that with, with all that hydrothermal kind of do, 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 do in Greenland? No, Iceland. Iceland. They're kind uh, of the sequestering. Yeah, they're, they're making, they're making making those minerals that you were talking about. Oh, magnetite. Yeah, and they, they can do that with other carbonate minerals too. So we're we're not just reduced to using magnesium carbonate. I mean, there's siderite that you can do, but I guess the, the fact that because 
olivine, like the reason they used that was because of its unstable nature at atmospheric pressure. So then from that, so the carbon dioxide is leading to this, uh, the way that the, how the, the greenhouse gas works with it and why it's important to reduce it is because you have the carbon dioxide. It has, uh, based on the internal arrangement of the, the CO2 and the angles of it. So when you have the, the photons that they come in, right, you have mm-hmm. the light. A lot of that is going to be absorbed by the planet Earth itself. And then what it does is it re-radiates that heat back out as infrared now that that heat being re-radiated back outwards is what's being captured by the the co2 or so when we think of greenhouse gases that that re-radiated back of the different wavelengths so the it went from ultraviolet light into this infrared and that infrared is being trapped up in the atmosphere and then excites these molecules and it releases heat back into back to the earth so that's where we get this net effect of it warming so where is it do you have like the the it's all this balance but it it's not it's not being balanced because it's captured it's being recaptured by these these molecules and it's not just carbon dioxide that's doing that so you have cfc so the chlorofluorocarbons so on a molecule mm. per molecule basis they're much less uh, abundant but they're like on an order of magnitudes greater at doing that and another one is methane so that ch4 methane again it's not as abundant in the atmosphere per se but it has a molecule per molecule basis it's it has a lot greater tendency to absorb that heat and re-radiate back down. So why do I bring up uh, methane? You can think of when we talked about agriculture, the agriculture, the unintended consequences. So as we see, I think it's it's this unique kind of you see this correlation as you have these this upper middle class, right? So it comes back to the the GDP and how well a country is mm-hmm. doing. So you see this increase as the middle upper class is kind of establishing itself. Their their dietary change needs are going to change. So they want more meat, right? They want these more finer things like dairy. So what we do, what they do is, so that's going to lead to them chopping down more trees to make more land for the cattle to graze. Not just that, whenever they, they want to eat all this meat, and then you have this population that's eating a lot, lot more meat, you're going to need a lot, uh, a lot more, uh, let's just say cows. So cows, they eat and the way that they digest their food, their byproduct, whenever they, whenever they fart, it's methane. So (laughs) So you're getting this unintended consequence of, of you have all of this cattle, but then the farts are going up to the atmosphere and it's heating it up. And then that's going to lead to the dieback of the, the forest because it's it's stressing it out with the heat and it's going to, right? So there's that unintended consequence. The other one is the NO2. So I talked about that. So when we talk about mm-hmm. uh, what can geology, so this is more in the environmental geochemistry kind of thing in the, the environmental side, but the the nitrous oxide and the, the CFCs are going to be catalyst in the destruction of the ozone. So the what happens basically, let me see. I don't want to tell I don't want to tell y'all wrong. Flip to my page. <laughs> no, so like the in 2O concentrations during abrupt climate change. But so basically how it happens, I'm I guess I can't find my page. But what happens is so I I I I really want to uh, next time I'm with you Brian, I'm going to show you one of my lectures where I have this conversation how the battle of the 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 CFCs and the ozone is destroyed. So ozones are important in the blocking of UV light. The UV light comes in, which is the harmful rays, and it kind of just, it disrupts it. So it's not harmful, re-radiates it back outward to space. So if you have a destruction of that, it's a bad thing. But the thing is, is when you have these chlorine atoms, so the, the chlorofluorocarbons, right? Is that what they are? Yeah, chloro CFCs. So what are CFCs? So they're that man-made uh 
to, I guess they don't heat up. So it's a polymer, I think that they used in mm. refrigerants. So it, it caused like, I guess they used like ammonia before and it, and it would like explode, <laughs> right? Not a good idea, but <laughs> yeah. so they made these CFCs, but then they found out like, oh, this is a bad thing for the environment. So they stopped making them. But there's, it's still up in the atmosphere, and the thing is, so when it gets bombarded with uh, ultraviolet light, it the, a chlorine is plucked off of it. Now, I guess it's, it's not the CFC so much as it is, as it, it's the chlorine that really wreaks havoc on the ozone. It's because what happened is that chlorine then uh, attacks an O3, if you will, mm-hmm. so then they have this battle, and that O3 and that chlorine, so that chlorine attaches to that O3, and it yanks off a it yanks off a, a, a oxygen. So now what you have the reaction is you have that CFC breaks down, and then you have a chlorine plus an ozone, which is O3. Right. So now right. now the that chlorine attacks that O3. Now you have a, a chlorine dioxide or monoxide. So you have chlorine monoxide and then you yep. have a, a breathable oxygen. So then I believe oh, something happens. So then you have a, another free oxygen out there and it takes it. So the, the basically what happens is, is that you have this chlorine that doesn't uh it doesn't get consumed by all this reaction, right? So it, 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 it's a catalyst, but it's not being put anywhere. So at the end of this reaction, so you're left with, uh, when you have these other free oxygens up there, they, they combine with the, with the, the, the chlorine monoxide. So now the, the, the net of it is, is you have two O2s and you have that chlorine that's free to go back out and destroy more ozone. And that's, that's the real <laughs> issue is, and the same yeah. thing's happening with the nitrogen or the NOx up there. So it's, it's a catalyst. So it, it causes this change, but it's not being consumed by it. So it's, it, it stays up there for a long time. It's basically what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I, I, I felt like I just got another cost in environmental chemistry <laughs> yeah so i mean the the yeah. overall is is that it stays and, and then there's a lot more it's a little bit more complicated with the maths and the reactions so and then you also have when it comes to ozone too uh you have like the the main ones where you where you see the holes in the atmosphere or the ozone layer where they're like oh the hole's getting big but i, I feel like that's an atmospheric thing that sets up every year over antarctica and then those cfc's up there kind of degrade and then i think it does it on its own too but another thing that they don't talk about is that uh ozone is bad for you to breathe so i mean then it gets mm-hmm. tied up in the tropospheric ozone and uh, it plays a problem too with uh, the pollution and breathing it and the particulates you know you don't want to be breathing in that stuff i think there's isn't there no there's not a, at all no because you can even see this in real life with uh yep. with the covid right they are seeing like the when you have the i forget what the hell they're called but the aerosols that are associated with heavily polluted areas that you breathe in and that's going to have some ozone in it It you get the the symptoms or it seems like it's a lot greater am i crazy yeah. thinking that i'm sure someone no. has heard that no yeah you're right you know what something even crazier is when you have smoke damage or anything like in your house some places, still like in Texas, California stands, they'll use ozone machines to come in and try to bond with the smoke so that it doesn't it can get cleaned quicker and it won't leave the smoke smell or damage in your appliances or fabrics and all that. And the problem is, is it'll cause you can get really dizzy. It can cause respiratory distress, especially if you have underlying conditions. So it's ozone is 
not just up there in the sky. Like people were using this to try to like make money off of. Uh, I think they're also used in uh, printing machines too. Yeah. Like you can, I think there's a science experiment that you can do like in your house. There's some, or I I don't know if it's in your house. You'd have to get like this certain type of paper, but you can actually measure ozone levels like in different places, wherever you have lighter places versus darker places. It it makes a difference. Yeah. So like a long time ago, I used to clean carpets (laughs) and like that was one of the things we'd leave an ozone machine in in an apartment. That that smelled really bad. So that's that's a true yep. that's a true story. I, I have done a lot of odd jobs. <laughs> so have one of those podcasts. Oh, yeah. But like, so like, there's also so what I wanted to also talk about, what can we use geology for too? like, so we know the different elements that creates this more like the environmental side, right? That case study that we did whenever we did that. um, So in Texas, there was this smelting plant that would melt what it was batteries, right? Batteries, yeah. So what they would do is the the byproduct of that, they would smelt it and then they would just dump the the waste on this area. Then again, it comes back to that uh, that urban pressure. Once that plant closed, they're like, oh, this is bad for the environment. So then I guess that they just like left it to be. And then since it that smelting plant was there, the land was cheap. So you have this urban pressure. What do they do? They built low income housing over these places. And then the one of the bad things in this uh, byproduct was lead. And lead, if you don't know, when you are a younger child that you don't have you don't have this blood brain barrier so as an adult you can fight it off a little bit more and not get lead poison as easy but as a kid you don't have that but then what they started seeing in the schools is that you started having these lower IQ scores and they're like hey what's going on with this an unintended consequence <laughs> Like, so what they've discovered is like, oh shit, the kids are playing in uh, this cesspool of harmful uh, materials and you're, you're having these low IQ scores due to that lead poisoning. So yeah. they, so they remediate, remediate it. Like we did it and they, you can still have, it's still like, I think it's within the, I don't know if it was one of those super fun sites. Yeah, it was. Oh, it was? Yeah. Okay. So it was a super fun site, but there's still a high concentration of lead that is still in that soil miles outward. So I I think we took samples from like how close right and then we we did kind of like a, a plot like outwards from distance right and it was still like alarmingly high but it was within the i guess the the what was acceptable as normal but that's that's what that's you know kind of one of those environmental factors that you need that we all need to be conscious of yeah yeah and that was yeah like epa has your personal exposure limit and that's something that when you're dealing with different like even we have that even for arsenic in our water like it, you have a limit on what can be toxic to you. And so what we did at that side is we'd go take soil samples, the clay, and we'd bring it back. And our, one thing I really liked was when we used the scanning electron microscopes, we were able to look at like the crystalline level of what was there and we'd be able to identify, uh, okay, well, no, that's just iron oxide. So that, there it is. There's the lead. And I mean, I, rem- I remember being like, God, these people lived no, in these areas. It's yeah. so wild. And I don't think they, they didn't, it wasn't a super fun site back then. So it was just like, oh, well, this smelting plant is not there yeah. anymore. We'll just cover it with a little bit of sand. And then the next thing you know, you have kids playing, right? Because something with it is like the other sediments, lighter sediments will kind of uh, work their, like, so uh, the the lighter elements or sediment, like when it comes to like the, what is it, the, the zone of alluvation, like the E horizon. Yep, the like, so you have E-horizon, all this, B&E. So, yeah, so you have all this settling out of the finer materials going down and then the, the lead kind of just stays at the surface. Yeah. So then that you, you have dangerous can get in, yeah, I can get in your, like the rain runoff can take that into our rivers and which can feed into our lakes, which is our, 
drinking, drinking water. water. I mean, yeah. yeah. So they Wonderful. say, yeah. So I mean, it's, it's, it's important to be aware of these kind of things and that they, they happen all the time. So they use this kind of thing to do other things. I think we should get into an episode where it's just like, we talk about like some of these really cool or not really cool, but really like disastrous, super fun sites. That would be a fun episode. <laughs> yeah. Good. All right. We spent a little bit too much time on that episode. So I know I'm mean, not episode. Jeez. Okay. There I stumbled <laughs> over my little, little, little. All right. So no, what we wanted to talk about now is moon rocks. Yeah. Not, not moon rocks, but rocks of the moon. So I'm going to set it up and then I'm gonna let Brian go away because he was super excited about this and I don't want to steal his thunder. So there, there's this idea of the history of the, the how did the moon form? Just a little bit of background. The, the earth as it is now is not necessarily, it's not big enough to uh, have formed with a with a moon intact, right? So I mean, I right. right due to like the way that it spins, blah 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 blah. We're right. no Jupiter. <laughs> yeah, like so the it, the the big big moons, especially because the moon is relatively big uh, compared to yeah. other places, right? So or other planetary bodies. But so what they think is a long long time ago, like uh, during the the proto planet stages, you had these two large like planetismals. I don't know what the technical term of them is, but like so uh, yeah. one kind of just gravitationally collapsed into the other one and it and it causes huge ejection of molten material out into space so then that's what became earth is that collision of the two but all that ejected material out into space kind of formed i don't know you you could think of it as the rings of saturn like around the rings of saturn but so then you had the continual uh, coalescence of those that ejected material that kind of formed into the moon outwards then that's how the it kind of the idea is how the moon formed and i'll let you take it away from here brian and i'll interject just whenever yeah please so that's the the question is that's been the widely accepted theory that there was a mars-sized body named theia i hope i'm saying that correctly that came in bombarded earth and then we had a combination of theia and earth matter that created this lunar disk that started spinning and then condensed and accumulated all this matter from the impact, and then we have the moon. What they've done in recent years, um, this has been like since like I think like the 1970s or so, uh, they've been trying to solve this problem geochemically. What they've been throughout the years, they've had this problem because they're trying to say, oh, this other body, it, it had a, a major player in what the moon composition is. So my focus on on this was not so much on what rock types do we have on the moon, what rock types, that's not going to solve our problem. The problem is what is the bulk composition, chemical composition of the moon and the bulk composition of the earth and the earth's mantle and the core because the earth was formed, as we know, like 4.56 billion years ago. The moon has been radiogenically dated to about 4.4 Oh, really? Because I, I, yeah. I have it at like, uh, like 3.8, but... You know, what's a couple hundred thousand years? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, all the stuff I was reading, like the rubidium strontium uh, and the demand samarium is all at a, like 4.4, I believe. Because so, aren't there, but there's some, I mean, like, I'm just, we'll just have a, a, a little bit of a discussion. Like, so some of the, the basalts that are, are, are measured up there are even younger than that, like 300 or three to 3.5 billion Right, and so that'll do. That'll happen when you have um, like melting due to energy release, right, from radioactive elements that can cause rocks to melt. And so, 
when you melt the original material, then these basalts will flow out, just like we have here on Earth. That and impact bombardment, as we know, the moon is like cratered to oblivion, right? Like it's, it's got all that. So you're going to have different degrees of melting. And so that melting will allow that those signatures to reset. And so then you can date things that way. So there, there should be an abundance of ages as far as that goes, but the abundance of isotopes. So not so much like where, when I talk about uh, geochemically trying to describe the composition of the moon is not so much what I'm looking for in a date. It's how, do, how does it relate? And so what they found is the moon and the earth are almost identical in oxygen isotopic abundances, titanium, chromium, and tungsten. And this is not seen anywhere else in our solar system. So you have, because the oxygen signatures are so similar, it means that the Earth and the moon had to form at about the same distance from the sun for these abundances of oxygen to be at that particular amount. Further out, you'll have lighter, lighter abundances. And so we have this, this amount that's like, I think it's like a 0.02% thousand is like, the deviation from one another. So, what you're, so basically what you're saying is, is that they are, it's, it's too similar based on different oxygen ratios, right? It's like, it's, it, it, you can't, it, I guess, argue against The difference against is negligible. It. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's like, it's not, it's, there's no significant difference between the two. Right. I, I want to like kind of clarify a little bit. So when I, when I'm saying the oxygen, I'm not talking about the atmosphere, right? Like that's where we're not discussing that. What we're discussing is when they, when you do an oxygen analysis on bulk rock samples, what you do is you crush the entire rock crush it and then you do acid treatment or whatever and you it's dependent on what element you're trying to quantify and then you run it through mass spec and you get these different abundances of the different isotopes because they weigh different because of the neutron like oxygen has 16 17 18 are its numbers and that's the protons plus the neutrons so the 17 or 18 is going to be the heaviest 16 is going to be the lightest so you're weighing the entire rock getting its oxygen content when they did that based on moon rock so they took the basalt from the moon and then they took what we see like we see the moon is really white that's because of the anorthites anorthosites that are anorthosite. made of anorthites <laughs> yeah anorthites are rocks and anorthites are the mineral. It's a plagioclase. It's the calcic in member. And so what they did is they got the oxygen out of both of those, the basalt and the ferroin anorthosite, and they are like toe-to-toe with the mantle of the earth. Yeah, and this also oh, what yeah, I was I would no, I was just gonna say like just so there's not any confusion, the most abundant mineral or not the most abundant element in the Earth's crust is oxygen. It's like forty seven percent. So I meant like yeah. so like when we thought when we talked about earlier about the minerals with like the silicates, it's uh, that silicon tetrahedron, which is the the oxygens and the silicon. So go ahead. No, yeah, you're right. They also noticed it with the, oh, like a. They are, I would say, less well-known. It's less popular as far as like what you hear out there, but tungsten. So tungsten formed, and it, it, the isotope we're looking for in it is 182, 182 tungsten. That is the decay product of 182 hafnium. So the Earth formed when there was still enough hafnium to start degrading into the tungsten. Tungsten, I'm sorry, hafnium has that half-life of like 9 million years. So we have a good idea of when the mantle was formed due to this isotopic record. But what they did was they looked at all these rocks that I mentioned before and not only did it for oxygen, they did it for tungsten and that also had like a 0.02% thousand difference 
between the two. Once again, un, unseen anywhere else in our solar system. And so that, that question right there is why then, if there was another body that impacted with the Earth, why are we seeing such close isotopic signatures and abundances between the moon and the Earth as far as oxygen and tungsten? That is undecided. So I, I hate that I have to answer this question with, we don't know yet. We don't know yet. Like we, we have not figured it out. But there's multiple things like they, the astrophysicists are getting involved and they're talking about rotation of impact and how it would create these things. And then you have the degassing and like the more volatile parts of elements. So uh, the lighter isotopes will be fractionated off into space. And so we don't see some of those. And so that could be the reason. But because those two isotopic signatures are so consistent with the Earth's mantle, it's very unlikely that the moon did not come from primarily Earth material. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that suggests that you had this impactor that kind of smashed in and then you had the accretion of all of that kind of because i mean like this was right around the time that you started getting the uh, fractionation of right or the chemical yeah. differentiation between because it was like still this molten mass yeah. right during that time because it was still in the the protoplanet portion so i mean like yeah. they, it wasn't solidified or anything it was kind of still like just chemically yeah, figuring itself out the core had started to form in the earth but it was like this these were very early stages so like tungsten once it's a siderophile meaning iron loving yeah so it wants to go to the iron nickel core of the earth right potassium, yeah. which is like the parent isotope is a lithophile so it's rock loving that's what it that means and it stays in the mantle so because those are so similar you know that you have to have same amount of time to get those abundances and signatures. Does that make sense? No, yeah, no, I, like, I, I understand what you're there. saying. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I don't. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no, so like, I know I don't want to get too sidetracked, but like, so it's whenever I try to explain things. So I was in the hot tub a little bit earlier, uh, decompressing. And then my, my oldest, we're well, not my, I guess my middle child, the oldest one that's with me full time was like, Hey dad, how come it's so cold outside? Cause I guess the, the, <laughs> the that, that cold front came through. I mean, it's not cold by any considerable. And I'm like, well, why do you think that it got colder? And he's like the wind. And I was like, well, how does the, how does, what's wind? <laughs> like trying to try to explain to a kid at like uh, pressure gradient yeah, force. Yeah. Like I was like, so look <laughs> up, like uh, I was like, look up above you. Like think about all of that weight pushing down on you. It's high pressure and then low pressure and it moves. But so then what I did is like, I was like, but why do we have seasons? So I was trying to explain to him by, uh, because I think there's a, also with the misconception too, I, I'm, I, this is, we're getting sidetracked, but the misconception, I think that you people are like, oh, you're getting closer to the, the, the sun is why you get... Uh, why you get the seasons. And I'm like, well, that's kind of true, but it's kind of not. Because if you think about, what is it, that perihelion and, a, well, I guess it's aphelion too, right? So uh, it, just due to the obliquity, like you're going to at some point be closer because I think the Southern Hemisphere's summer is closer to the sun than our summers, but that still doesn't explain why it's hot on our side. But it's due to that tilt yeah. of the earth. So I was like, stick your right. head out. Stick your hand out, <laughs> Nolan. Stick your hand out. It's that due to that uh, the angle, that 23 and a half degrees whenever... It's our summer whenever, right, it's it's absorbing most of that light, and it's based on angle of the light hitting that heats up. So hopefully I, I tried to explain it to him as best possible. He got it at the end. He's like, because of the <laughs> Earth's tilt. I'm like, yes. So I mean, like, yeah. it's really is not... It's not really anything to do with how close it is to the sun, right? Because I mean, like, just imagine how far away we are from the sun <laughs> based on, like, it's it's more of the angle. Yeah, it's, and honestly, like, when I 
And I think of like a cosmogeology, astrophysics, like when we solve problems like this, what, where did the meme come from? Like, it's not one discipline that takes us on. It's like, it's all of them. And like, that was kind of the thing is like, now like physicists are getting involved with that issue of like composition because they're like, well, the orbit of the moon is not on the equatorial plane, nor is it in the ecliptic plane. It's 5.1 degrees or whatever. It's so complex. Because that that will influence like what volatiles go where, yeah, and what will condense, and it it's not just a, a one trick pony like you is a geologist problem. It's not it's it's everybody, and that that also is a problem. When what I was trying to get at is communicating these things. I was talking to someone earlier, and they're like, "Oh yeah, like it's like they listen to our podcast, and they're like, yeah, like your points, I, I get them, but like it's kind of like it, it 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 makes sense, but sometimes it doesn't, and I I am." I have a major problem with like trying to explain science stuff that I might understand a little bit to someone that maybe doesn't understand science very much at all. And so it's no, I yeah, feel like you're a lot better at that because you're a teacher. But like I, I just spoke about tungsten and cores and mantles. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I don't. Yeah. No, no. So yeah. like, yeah. But I feel like, and and then you know, us doing this kind of helps us and kind of bridge that gap too. Because I feel like the articulation yeah. you bring up that good point is that we do need to be able to articulate these things in a way that that's not so iso- esoteric right so it's we're not yeah. like uh it's like whenever they told you like know your audience and it's like you know no your audience <laughs> like <laughs> so yeah. i mean like we will i promise try to do our best on uh if you know true articulate ourselves in a way that makes sense to us, but also uh, the the viewer out there. We're not viewer, the listener, yeah. the earballer, <laughs> <laughs> the earballer. So uh, I guess we're probably going to have to uh, cut it short on that. So that's, I'm sorry. We only got to four questions because uh, we're already up against it being at a, I told you, Brian, I told you, Brian, Dang, I, I thought like, we do. I know, but I, cause I feel like we're a little bit more unscripted tonight. So, you know, yeah. we're getting lost in our thoughts and uh, driving That's that okay. train. But I, I don't feel like we went too we derailed too much. I mean, I think I did at the start, but once we started going, it was a lot better. So. Yeah. So, um, as always, let's just, we can briefly just do it. That freaking rocks. Yeah, so I didn't have band <laughs> practice this week, so I didn't get my cable in order to record the yeah. thing. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a bad, bad, bad guy. One day it's going to happen and people are going to be like, I gave up on this, but then they're going to be so shocked. <laughs> well, they can go. I mean, like the kind of idea I posted that uh, that video of me playing that guitar yeah. riff. So, I mean, it's basically going to be that with something else, I think. Yeah, so... Yeah, so I guess a little bit of exciting news for uh, on our end, our our single finally dropped. Uh, it's on all of the, I guess the the musical kind of thing. Dude, that was a headache. Can I tell you? I mean, like I, I mean, I, I I'd like to thank Justin, our bassist, like for setting it up. I think he went through. Do y'all use Distro Kids? Or do y'all do it all yourself? Yeah, that's how we do it. We okay. Yeah, so we did it through them, but like since we have, uh, it's called Mirror, comma mirror uh i guess the the commas in a lot of spreadsheets are like delineators and they they kind of like are oh that means okay this is a break but it was a headache in terms of i I think for itunes it's finally fixed now but we with that comma in there i think it it messed up something and we were just mirror and then uh i don't know if you i i made a video this like i did all the the artwork and putting the video 
production together. So like I had my own, you know, issues too, because I think they uploaded a video <laughs> and it didn't have anything moving. So they said, Facebook said we couldn't use that because it was copyrighted. And we're like, but it's our music. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. yeah. I'm surprised you got uh, Apple and uh, I guess it was Apple who screwed it up <laughs> the name. And I'm surprised that you got them to answer so quickly. Like we've, we did a collaboration with a friend of mine, uh, Souls, last or this year, I guess, and it took quite a while to get the the names attachment picked. It's it's not just like, hey, I'm gonna upload to Spotify. Like you have to go through your distributor. They gotta put it in, and you gotta like contact both and try to get it fixed. Just Dude, and it is. I mean, like, uh, what is it? So like on our like YouTube too. Like I don't even know if we're getting uh. I, not, not like a, like we have like 200 <laughs> views, like, right? <laughs> it's not like, nice. but, but they already have like uh, ads on it. But I was like, it, like it, it's since it was distributed through distro kids, like our, I, I guess we're not even going to see a penny of that uh, advertising meant because of. Oh uh, yeah. Not that like you'll get a fraction. Like, so on distro kids, like y'all probably set up your royalties and all that, but you get such a small fraction. Yeah. Doesn't even matter. Ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, like it's, uh, but it, it was, we made like $1,100 last year or something. On the whole year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're like, Oh, and then you split that up amongst like six people. Yeah. Uh, we, like we, I think we've already agreed that I think we're just going to use it to like, uh, pay for the practice space and then future recordings. Yeah. Yep. That's what we do. So, but yeah, our, our single just dropped. It's called, uh, missing pieces. I think I mean, the whole idea of seeing like, I guess something that starts off inside your head for one, it's like before it, it didn't exist. And then at the end it is, it's something that's, it resembles what you had in your head, but like how after the collaboration process and everyone putting their input into it, I mean, it's a, it's this beautiful process that I can't, I can't really explain like, right. So yeah. us and our articulation, I like, how can I explain this? But it's, it's, it's one <laughs> of those weird things, right? So like, especially I would, I would, I would imagine like, like with um, I, your band, right. So I mean, like y'all's are more like, soundscapey and like where do you go and a vision in your head so how would you explain like the where you start to where you end like that process for you um we usually like one of us will write a riff um and we'll kind of like we'll throw a bunch of pedals at it and like we'll feel like it's presentable (laughs) and we may or may not like stay with the meaning is so like there's um the ep we're working on right now i wrote one riff because i was like kind of running around inside saint paul's cathedral in london and it was just this like expansive cathedral like the the main chamber was huge but then you had all these like staircases that went to other floors to like maybe places that you're not allowed to go in and i tried to explore some of those or whatever but um it was just like you try to capture initially the feeling so that maybe not too much of it gets lost in the process and then you you hand it off to everybody and they feel what they feel out of it and they produce things in the song ends up quite different Um, oh yeah but but you love it yeah that process is good and too and then like also it's good just like uh to give it because i know i i feel like whenever i i bring something to the band it's like i try to make it as like less painstaking as as possible with like the process so i'm like i'll write the guitar parts i'm like this is how Kind of how I had the, uh, cause you know, uh, it's a lot easier for me to like write the lead parts. If I, if I, you know, if I know the structure of the rhythm part, so I'll usually like come up with a rhythm part and then I start dicking around with the, uh, the lead parts, like kind of like the, the melodies. So then yeah. like, but you know, that, that, that's not always 
the the best because it doesn't it doesn't always translate to like okay now I'm going to give this off to the rhythm guitar player and then you know he wants to put his own spin on it so it's, at a certain point I'm just like why well, I, I just gotta just go with it like accept the change yep. <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm just like I'm like that's not how I already have lead parts written like don't change it too much <laughs> I know yeah it, it's hard to hand stuff off and then you like you learn to to love what they write like uh, oh, absolutely that that I'm talking about like the the bass player like he ended up writing his bass after the rest of the song had been written which is kind of backwards but um the ending like he came up with this bass part that completely changed the whole latter half of the song the feel of it and yeah. now like i can't see it another way so it's, you have it in your head and you're like you know you write something you write a full song and it you really love it and you attach to it and then it will take some getting used to but the other people's effect on the song is no so is yeah what you you it's, it's the benefit of being in a band because when, when we listen to music we like by other bands, we get that feeling too, like, oh, I can't believe they wrote that. That's the way they transitioned there. I never would have thought of that. You get that with your own band when you write the song initially. Yeah. And so it's that's one of my favorite parts. Yeah, and it's that collaboration too. It teaches that uh, you can, ooh, what's up, Train? Choo-choo. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So yeah, so I mean, like it's 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 a the whole process is kind of a, a cool thing. So I think our next, I, we're gonna, I think shooting for I guess in the beginning of October, we want to kind of, uh, I think we're gonna go in and try and record two songs. So then you know, so this single is gonna be part of a, a larger compilation eventually once we get all of the uh, things. We're still exploring. So that was our first adventure into the um, recording studio as a band. So I think. Uh, I don't know if we're good. We might go to a different uh, recording studio next time. So it might be a different process. I know they mentioned recording yeah. as like a whole band this time. I was like, I, okay. don't, I don't know about that. I screw um, up. I screw up too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, like the way I like, cause we did that with this EP. We, we played all together and then we went retract everything. And one thing we noticed is a lot of the energy that was in that initial jam session was a lot better. And yeah. so we like we tried to replicate that by doing better takes and stuff, and and we we're we're there, but it, there's something to be said for doing a live record together. So um, one thing we might do in the future is doing that, and then like retracking where like some of the main guitar parts are all tracked, like uh, all the guitars are tracked together for certain parts of the song to get that kind of airiness um, yeah. and the just that raw energy. Nice. So I, I'd, I'd be interested to hear that. I really. The mix that you um, the all released is great. I thought it was really full because I got to kind of hear the evolution of the song as you wrote it. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I was pretty blown away. So whoever who mixed that? Uh, oh, uh yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. It, it was, so it was did that a guy. Great job. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. And like, uh, it, I mean, so when that song first started, like, uh, my best friend, he absolutely was. 100% against it. And he's the dude that's, he, he's the one who uh, is the, the screamer in the band. So uh, he, okay. like, I would send it to him and he's like, he's like, nope, don't like that. And I was like, but dude, you're not, you're not, you're not listening to it right. I mean, yeah. if the more you listen to it, I promise you the more you're going to like it. <laughs> and then he's like, yeah. he's like, you son of a God, you're right. I do. I start to like it. <laughs> and then <laughs> it's this, this, uh, the thing like, so like the, the final cut, like the, the second, uh, the second verse of it, like, right, yeah. it does, it does like the intro, then it goes verse one, then the chorus one. So that, that second verse, like, uh, 
it it was like originally me doing like this slidey pick thing, but then I was just like, dude, it serves the song so much better if we just kind of like build it back up there with just like the the do 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 into yeah, the into that heavy part. So I was like, man, sometimes just like less is more. Well, absolutely. We have we trimmed down so much stuff because we're like we're all like going to freaking Mars and back with our guitar parts. <laughs> like, come on, let's say. Hmm. At least no, to the I, moon I thought back. the song, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to say that, and I was like, "Don't say it." <laughs> um, but no, um, yeah, I, I thought the song flowed really well, and I, like I've told you before, I really like your vocalist. I think that's not a usual uh, like timbre of voice, but yeah. she she nails it. Yeah, she, like, I, she, I really love it. She kills it. I can't wait. Like I, I really wanted our next song to be the one where she does opera, but they oh, we're going yeah. with our uh, our our two older songs. So after we do these ones and it's going to be all like original, like everyone in this band right now wrote all the music. like, so some of this, uh, the, the next ones are going to be from our, our kind of, uh, that transition where most of it is, uh, parts that I'd written for like both parts. So it's okay that it's new people came in. Yeah. So, but after that, then it's just all, it's all going to be new. Like, uh, like the new one that we're writing right now has gang vocals, which is pretty cool. <laughs> we're like, anyways, it's like, it has a pop punk <laughs> feel to it. Excellent. All right. Well, I think that is going to call it for a nine. I think, uh, this is going to be some fun editing on my end. So, <laughs> um, have fun. I think we should uh, close it with that 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 music again. I, I like it. So yeah. I I really like this format. I see. I next time maybe we'll just ask for four questions. So I mean, I yeah. I told you like each one. If we like fifteen minutes, I think would be would serve it right. We should set a timer. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Close. So then yeah. also uh, one little housekeeping. So I do think that we are going to try to do kind of a a debate type format. Um, yeah. uh, one of these episodes moving forward. Uh, so that should be interesting and a different perspective on things. We're going to take a we're going to take a, an issue, and then someone's going to be for the motion, and then someone's going to be against it. And but we're going to use scientific facts to build our cases and arguments. So uh, it's it's a good way to highlight the the social discourse that you can have two opposing ideas uh, and still try to do good in the world. So yeah, I'm I excited. I, I need to find my uh, debate teammate. Yeah. Yeah. So I, th- I think yeah. we need to, we need to, we need to do uh, a coffee one of these days, Brian, and uh, yeah. discuss, discuss it in a little bit more detail. So do it. All right. Well, uh, this has been another episode of geology on the rocks. As always, I'm James, the geologist. I'm Brian Baggin. And stay tuned and keep it on the rocks. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I like rocks, mother... (laughs) 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 Oh, yeah, it's going to die. So we did it. (laughs) Another episode down.